Listener Production. Welcome back, good people. You are listening to episode 154 of the Howie Games, Lisa Curry, Part B. Don't forget to check out Lisa's new book by Harper Collins. Lisa, a memoir, 60 years of life, love and loss. On we go. So how does life change when all of a sudden um, there's photos, there's all the women's magazines, the, the sport pages? How does life change when you're an athlete and all of a sudden you're in the national conscience? And we'll get to Uncle Toby's in a minute, um, but, but is it... Is it is it fun? Is it a bit overroaring? What's it like? Um, I guess at first in the, you know, in our early 20s, it was fun. It was fun. I mean, who doesn't like seeing themselves in the paper every now and again? Especially when you look like you and Grant did, to be fair. <laughs> but then the next day there's another picture, then the next day there's another picture, then the next weekend there's another. And, you know, it became a lot, um, but we were able to manage it quite well. And, of course, you know, any sponsors that I had loved the fact that I was in the public eye. I loved it. I, I, I really enjoyed it. And if you put yourself in that position, you also have to take the bad times with the good times. So um, that's fine too. I take that on, on my shoulders. But Grant, um, he doesn't like the media. He doesn't like them at all. Um, he, won't, he won't even speak to anyone about anything. Just it really, it wasn't his thing, but I loved it because, you know, I could just be invited to go to a little swimming carnival in, you know, Timbuktu and go out there and have a sausage sizzle and a beer with the, you know, with the parents <laughs> afterwards and I'd have a ball. Um, but Craig didn't like doing any of that sort of stuff. So I really grew up um, around people, around lots of different types of people. I could have aged care um, residents. I would have primary school kids. Then I'd be at dinner with the Governor-General and Prince Charles and then I'd be in the Prime Minister's office and then I'd be back at a primary school then at a, you know, shopping centre. So I had this whole range of things thrown at me from a very early age and and I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. So when does, and I, I reckon because you put a link to it on Facebook. I think it was your first Uncle Toby's ad. You'll have to correct me, but it's you and a young chap sitting at the pool and he's trying to get a word in. Was that the very first Uncle Toby's ad? Yeah, it was. Hey, Tim, if you're so hungry, you do an Uncle Toby's muesli bar commercial. What would I say, Lisa? Well, you could tell everybody Mm. that Uncle Toby's muesli bars come in crunchy and new chewy. And then you could tell everybody how terrific the natural ingredients taste. Ladies and gentlemen. But, Tim, I think Uncle Toby would prefer it if your mouth wasn't full. Sorry, Mum. It was, and I remember I I had a big lunch because if you you go on um, filming an ad, they always have catering. Yes. Oh, there's just so much food and I'd eaten such a big lunch. (laughs) I was trying to hold my gut in as I was saying my lines. (laughs) But, um... Um, yeah, that was my first of many. So how does Uncle Toby's first come to you? Because uh, there's a lot of brands in Australia, but you are synonymous with that brand. Like when I think Uncle Toby's, I think of all the ads, I think of you. Terrific. Bring any Uncle Toby's music bars, Lisa. <laughs> I left them down there. Let's go and get some. How does it come first across your desk, uh, so to speak, and can you give me any idea... You know, what are you getting paid early doors to be uh, an ambassador for Uncle Toby's, the face? Well, you said in your book that after your first ad, sales went up 400%. That's a lot of muesli bars. Yeah, I know. Um, So I um, had a phone call from them uh, and um, actually, funny story, uh, 
I was approached by a guy at the Broad Beach Hotel. We were having some drinks and um, people were just, I don't, I've, I've hardly bought a drink ever in my life. Everyone buys me drinks. Um, nice. But someone came up to me and handed me a rose, which was nice. And then another guy came up to me and he said, I'd like to be your manager. And I went, oh, what would I want a manager for? And they said, oh, you know, you'd be on TV and you make millions of dollars and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, that guy was Peter Foster. The con man? Yeah, <laughs> yes. Oh, gee whiz. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, what did you say? I hope you said no to him. Well, I did say no. Um, Whew, I'm not quite sure lucky. why I said no because uh, he wasn't, I, you know, I didn't know him from Bar of Soap. But then um, I had another manager, a guy called Guy, and anyway, Uncle Toby's rang and organised for me to go down to their um, offices in Sydney and I sat down and while I was waiting for them all to be, you know, spoken to, I'd eaten two muesli bars. It was just a bowl of them on the thing. So they must have <laughs> thought clearly I liked them um, and they must have liked me and it just started from there and um, I was paid $10,000 for the year. Wow. Okay. I know. That's all I was, well, now I can say that's all I was paid, but at yeah. the time, you know, that was that was good money in those days. And then I was offered uh, my first job and I was paid another $10,000. So I was making $20,000, you know, as a as a 20-year-old, 21-year-old. Um, once again, these days it's, you know, not a lot to some people, but it was massive in those days. Um, so that's how it all started. LA, I'm going through my childhood, th- those games in LA, it was Carl Lewis and the Coliseum and all the American razzmatazz. That that games, for whatever reason, sticks in my mind. I, I know throughout the book that you're often competing the next day, so you can't do opening ceremonies, but was, was LA as big and as bold and brash and as colourful as it seemed for a little kid back here in Australia watching on, on the telly? There had been an almost eerie silence here in the Memorial Coliseum as we come to you live until a few moments ago. The crowd total and hushed in anticipation of the opening ceremonies. But just now, as we come back, the church bells have begun to peal all over the city of Los Angeles. Every church in the town ringing its bell to welcome the athletes of the world. There, of course, the Olympic rigs. Those are balloons down on the field. Almost 90,000 people in place. Cost of this entire production today some $5 million, but none of it going to the participants, the fanfare. Yeah, it was, and even more. You know, one of the most exciting things about a Games is being in the dining room. So you walk into the dining room and Carl Lewis walks past. Marty Accommodich just walked that way. You know, the the Italian men's water polo team. Oh, my God. Like, hello. Handsome chaps, were they? You're kidding me. (laughs) The Italian men and the Swedish girls, unbelievable, you know. Um, So that's the most fun part of an Olympics is, you know, eating every meal because you see this tiny little gymnast sitting there and she's got like a piece of lettuce and a carrot on her plate and sitting next to her is a, you know, a... Hungarian weightlifter and he's got like half a cow on his plate and six (laughs) loaves of bread and, you know, desserts piled up like this and you see all these things. And one of the most exciting performances that I remember in LA was um, the men's 200 freestyle. So there was a guy from Lebanon and he swam in the heat and he was really hairy, really hairy. So he had his big jumper on. He hadn't 
maybe even heard of shaving down, but so he's swimming with his <laughs> jumper on. But he came so last, like he was so far behind everybody. And because he was so far behind, the crowd just cheered for this guy. And when he oh. finished, the crowd erupted. He got out of that pool. He, he walked a lap of honour while the crowd went nuts for this guy. And like wow. that's one of the most exciting things that I've ever seen at the Olympics because it's not, you know, it's not just about the winning. It's about these everyone in the world having a go, being the best in their country, going to one place and doing the best that you can, you know. So there's, there's so much more than winning. And, and at the Olympics, winning is so hard. Winning any medal is so hard. Um, but the experience that you, experiences that you have is just incredible. I mean, I've got thousands of stories like that. I mean, the, the other story was the, the Kuwaiti divers. They don't even have a bloody diving tank in Kuwait. So <laughs> they would start diving and they'd end up on their face or on their side. And as soon as it happened once, the crowd just came from everywhere and they were getting scores of zero, zero, 0, 0.5, 0.5. But you know what? They got up and they did 10 dives and each yeah. one was as bad as the other. And if they actually landed with their hands first, you know, the crowd just went nuts. So, the, you know, there's all these sorts of stories that we were able to witness, um, you know, back in the day and it was so much. That's what makes the Olympics so much fun. Well, they talk about the Olympic spirit, don't they? I mentioned that you, you, you walked away with a fourth. And in lane eight, 22-year-old Lisa Curry from Queensland, Australia, the most experienced member of the Australian team, which has swum so well here in these games. They've won a total of seven medals. Um, going well in the IM. And as I said, you, you described it as a brain fart in the middle of your race, which is a modern expression. What, what happened? So Australians continue to swim well, but Americans continue to dominate as Tracy Hawkins and Nancy Hogshead win gold and silver in the 200 individual medley. <laughs> oh... I'd had enough. Uh, you know, we we missed out on a on a medal in the relay. We got disqualified in the other relay. You know, we had two disqualifications in relays in Brisbane, and I was tired of the disappointment. It was starting to, you know, just I don't know, just be too much. The pressure, the disappointment was all too much. I just and the real reason I went to LA was because Grant was going. You know, that was a real reason I went. So I had my final, I was over in lane eight and I did a really good butterfly leg and in the backstroke, which is my weakest um, leg, about 15 metres into it, I just thought, oh, stuff it. I'm over this. I'm just over it. I just had that thought, I'm over it. Because, you know, the pressure was too much. And, um, and then all of a sudden I thought, what the hell are you doing, Lisa? It's Olympic final, you know, <laughs> get going. So for about 10 metres I just backed off. And which is very unlike me, but, but you know, for all the times that I did a good job, there were times when I, when the pressure did get to me and it's just, you know, it's relentless, you know, year after year, but not only that in LA, like another two Olympics and I was still there under the same pressure. So you mentioned, um, which I found surprising you, but I didn't understand it. Um, because I've come up with modern swimmers, but typically swimmers are at one Olympics. So you went to the second to LA, ostensibly because you said Grant was going. So you've got your second, and then you become a wonderful mother, have a couple of kids. Five years out of the pool. When you say in your book five years out of the pool, 
Does that mean any swimming or no swimming? Oh, I might have dived in and swam a couple of laps. No, I went to the gym. I did aerobics. I went to the um, I went to the beach with Grant. I started surf lifesaving and, you know, yep. no, tra- no swimming training. Maybe a couple of swimming sessions where I might have dived in, but no swimming training at all. So then why do you all of a sudden click and think, hang on, I, I might jump back in the pool here? Well, I went to Brisbane to watch the World Masters Swimming Championships because <laughs> I thought maybe I could do Masters Swimming. So I just wanted to kind of look at it a bit to see how old they really were because <laughs> Masters sounds old, especially when you're like 26. And I saw a girl there from America. Her name was Sandy Nelson Bell and her husband, Keith Bell, was a psychologist who came and spoke uh, at one of our training camps once and Sandy swam the 50 and the 100 freestyle faster than any Australian had ever swum and she was 33. Mm. And I thought... What? How can you swim that fast? Because you're so old. So being 26, 33 was really old. We were going on holidays to America later that year and so I found out where they lived and I rang them up, a bit like Jacques Rogg, you just go knock on the door, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> rang them up, I said to I, I saw you swim, you know, in Brisbane, I thought you were amazing, can I come and see you? So we sat on the lounge room floor with her, you know, got little Jamie next to me. He's only, you know, would she have been probably two or three then? And I just asked all the questions. What are you doing? How did you do it? What sort of training? You know, how do you feel? What happens if you lose? You know, blah, blah, blah. And after speaking to her, I just knew. I just knew I could swim fast again. And I came home and I dived straight into the pool when I got home and in three months, I was in the Australian team um, going off to Japan. So, wow. I know. See, I was inspired by somebody else. Because in swimming, you don't, you don't swim when you're older. Like nowadays, I think, you know, they're around about 28, 29. But, you know, I was 30. I was a mum with two kids at the last Olympics. So it was pretty unheard of. But at that time, you know, 26 was really old to be swimming. So there's a couple of things to talk about off the back of that. Um, 1990 in Auckland, another Commonwealth Games, four golds and a silver. It's Curry now. She's taken the lead from middle Susie. They're going to do the Cunella. Yes, Lisa Curry. And then you get to um, the famous Barcelona Games with the with the arrow, etc. when you're a mother of two. A couple of things. Well, one thing you said, like you were, and I, I say this, I was looking back at photos. I was showing my wife photos last night. There's a couple of photos of you in crop tops. I reckon it's in Barcelona. And there's another photo from you in your book where you're diving in. And you are in unbelievable Nick Lease. I'm like, people need to buy the book just to look at the Nick you're in in those photos. And you talked about basically parading around on the pool deck, showing everyone your physical strength to get a mental edge. Well, I mean, I had, because um, I had kids, right, I, I couldn't do the amount of training that I used to do, so I had to find a different way. So I would go to the gym where they had a creche and I'd work out more in the gym than in the pool. So I became strong and fit and no one else was doing that type of training. And these days everyone has a mobile phone, not in those days. These days, you know, you'd be taking photos of yourself, video of yourself, you know, doing whatever, 
If I took video of myself in training in those days, you would know why I look like that. I was a machine in the gym <laughs> and my coaches pushed me. They, you know, there was nothing to do, you know, sets of 10 chin-ups easily, you know, six sets of 10 chin-ups. I'd do, you know, three or four reps of chin-ups with a 20-kilo weight tied around my waist. Wow. But we never photographed any of it. So no one ever knew, they could, no one could ever see what we were doing. We, we can only tell people how good we were. You know, um, <laughs> well, your bo- as you said, your body was evidence of how good you were and how hard you trained, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, I, was, I was really light um, as well. So my, my power-to-weight ratio was really high. Um, so, yeah, it was, um, gee, I wish I looked like that now. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not prepared to do the work anymore. Um, but, yeah, it was, a, it was um, physically I was in great shape. But like I said, everyone at the Olympics is like that. Once again, you walk through the dining room, everybody looks like that. You know, huh. the, the Swedish girls, they wear G-strings in training. Hello. You know, huh. everyone wears bikinis walking around the, the, the village and it's just a body fest. It's amazing. <laughs> so how, again, normally swimmers at one Olympics. You're now at three Olympics. I don't know. Um, so this could be an ignorant question, but how much were you at the forefront and how much feedback did you get from women that had had babies and all of a sudden saw you doing these things? Did, did it change perceptions? I, I don't know if that's an ignorant question or not. Well, I mean, I, I would hope that it had changed perceptions. Um, I hoped that women would go, wow, life isn't over when you have a baby. I hoped that's what they thought. Um, but I did prove that it's possible. I mean, Kieran Perkins and I laughed about it because he said, oh, hang on a minute, I'm a father and I kept swimming. I said, yeah, but you only did your two minutes worth of, you know. Come on, Kieran. Two minutes <laughs> worth of work. You know, our whole body changes, you yes. know, and it's hard work to get it back. And and, and my mum, you know, if, if she was still here today, she, you know, she remembers me staggering up the steps at her place in Brisbane after training session. She was looking after both my little girls and, you know, I was exhausted and she'd have dinner cooked for me and then the kids would want to have a bath and read them, put them in the bed and then you get up and go back to training the next morning. So you're exhausted all the time and that's why recovery is so important. In in Barcelona, I was only swimming probably 22 to 25 kilometres a week max and that's that's not a lot of that. Like Kieran Perkins would do that in two or three sessions. Mm. That was my whole week's mileage. But I was in the gym four times a week and that's because there was a crash there. Um, as my coach had said to me, you have to be as strong as the boys. So he was the one that, um, you know, put me through my paces and, boy, we, we, worked, we worked really hard, really hard. So once Barcelona finished and you obviously got into surf boat rowing and you kept, you know, your competitive juices going, but once Barcelona finished, were you happy to be done with it, with swimming and the the life that you'd created? No. <laughs> yes and no, because I was happy because the workload had finished and my life got back to normal. I mean, what is normal? I mean, I was working all the time. Um, but I wasn't happy because I still missed that medal, you know, by a couple of tenths of a second. So 
You know, I did I did swim again um, later on, but it was I just knew it was over. You, you get to that realization where, you know, you you know it's over, um, as opposed to knowing that you've still got more. Back to Lisa shortly. We have been privileged to feature many swimmers on the show over the last five years. Five years, how did that happen? Episode 60 with Lisa Jones, 64 with Ian Thorpe, 71 with Kate and Bronte Campbell, and episode 82 with the star that is Grant Hackett. Your Olympic record, mate, it's phenomenal. Three golds, three silvers and a bronze. The three silvers and the bronze... Are you proud of those or were they missed opportunities? They're failures. Are they? Mm. Every silver medal in my cupboard's a failure. Wow. So I think... Uh, That's a bit of a downer. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Sorry to put the conversation <laughs> well, you, like that. Your face just dropped when I mentioned it. I didn't expect uh, yeah, to Yeah, well, that. it's funny. I um, I look back on my career, I think over 12 years I lost the 1,500 twice in that whole entire time at every major meet. And that's what I think about in my career. It's it's just difficult not to as a performer and a person who has high expectations of themselves. So one silver is uh, 2008, which was the 1,500 metre freestyle, which I lost, which I would have been the first to win the three in a row in the Maluli, same event. the Tunisian. The Tunisian. I know uh, a little bit about Tunisian. Yeah, yeah, just yeah, a little yeah. bit. So, so Maluli got me there and I, you know, my heat time would have won that race. So I totally stuffed that up. That was completely my fault. The 400 metre freestyle, I left my run too, too late in 04 against Thorpey and I was closing the gap on him and he beat me by around 0.1, 0.2 of a second. And then the 4 by 2 freestyle relay in Athens, we lost that by 0.1 um, and we just didn't get that right. And I felt like my split could have been a lot better too. So I felt like that's the only race I've actually cried after was that one. So What happened? Um, we lost and I felt like I didn't contribute to the degree. I mean, I did the second fastest split behind Ian and I let off and I was up against Phelps and he kind of just got me. But Where were you when you allowed yourself to cry? Uh, massage area. So I just, I couldn't contain it. It was funny. I, it was, it's the only time, good or bad, in my entire career where I've actually been in tears. I just put my, my head down in my towel and someone put my, their hand on my back and I was just like, then, you know, you start sort of sobbing. It's funny because you would think that would be an individual event would mm. mean more to you, but that four by two meant the absolute world to me. So, yeah, so that was a, that was a really tough silver medal. So to be honest, when you, I think, you know, I've raced... 63 or four times or something it is in international races at Com Games, Olympics, Pan Packs or World Championships. And I think close to 40 of them are gold medals, but I don't even think about those. I think about the the silvers. Cause what, what should I have done differently? How can I recreate history? How can I do that better? That's that's where I focus my energy and I I actually can't help it. So yeah, it's it's a it's a weird thing. Grant's episode. Episode number 82 had a real impact on me. Check it out if you haven't already listened. Okay, let's get back to Lisa. You talk in the book, Lisa, a lot about your kids and the passing of your daughter, which you mentioned at the start. Now, as a parent, um, I don't really know the right question or the wrong question to ask, but you, you detail it extensively. How difficult is it? Losing a child because as a parent of two, I, I that's it, that's that's the bottom line. That, that it gets no worse than that. I think everyone feels that they have kids that you've unfortunately had to go through that. Mm. How old are your kids? They are twelve and ten, and mm. the thought of one of them not being with me, mm. I haven't experienced it. I hope yeah. I never experience it. 
but I just can't imagine life without one of them. Yeah. I can't imagine it. I can't actually imagine them not being there. No. And, you know, um, where do I start? Um, I know I've only just started being able to talk a little bit about it. I hadn't been able to. I've been trying to navigate my way through all this. Grant can't. Like, you, you... He's never spoken about it and I don't think he would be able to, but it's a difficult place to be in, um, that's for sure. But I've realised that the more that I can talk about it, not that it's getting any easier, um, but I think one day I'll be able to think clearly because at the moment I still can't, I'm still just in that hole but one day I hope that I can think clearly enough that I can actually find some answers um, because there's, oh, God, here I go, Oof, so many, so many young kids who are suffering um, through mental illness and, you know, the suicide rates, just awful. And I can't work out why we can't find some solutions somehow because someone has to. I, I can't. I can't I can't believe the most brilliant minds that we've got in science that can't work out, you know, how to prevent this from happening to a lot of kids. And, you know, poor Jamie, she she just copped everything. And, you know, uh, it's just, um, it's, yeah, it's your worst nightmare as a parent, you know. And, um, you know, she was so beautiful. So, um, so talented, but she couldn't see it. Um, everyone else could. Um, but why, why does a child feel like that? You know, and I think, I don't know if it's something that someone says to them or something happens to them, but I do know that, you know, you, you have to encourage your children at all times, you know, and, and words do matter. And, you know, I, I really want, I really want Jamie's life to have mattered by being able to talk about it, to respect and honour her as the person that she was. Um, but she had this beast inside her and she, she, couldn't, she couldn't see the light. So what have you learnt about that? And we have a lot of kids listen to this show with their parents. Are there any lessons to be learnt that you've learnt from it or you can't decipher those lessons as yet? No, I don't think I can decipher them as yet. It's hard. If I knew the answers, I would be shouting it to the world. Um, Yeah, I'm sure you would. I think that, um, you know, the world is a big place. Australia is is an amazing place to live. Um, there's so much opportunity, there's so much to do and see. And, you know, I think people have to think about their life and what's what kind of life that they want to have um, and value life uh, and not compare it to anybody else's because I think that's half the problem. You know, they're always people are always comparing themselves to somebody else, but mm. you're not like somebody else. You're you. And you have to walk your own path with your own 
passion, your own love for things. It's like, you know, my brother and sister, the only thing that we've got in common are our parents. There's nothing at all that we have in common. And, you know, you might want your child to be a surfer, but your child might want to be a gardener, you know? So you have to let them be what they want to be. And I think that's really important for parents to be able to give their kids the skills early so that later on they can decide themselves what they what they want to be. I had a, a chap on this podcast recently, Lisa, by the name of Nick Revolt, who lost his sister. Um, a, a lot of people are hurting in Australia at the moment. A couple of friends of mine, well-known cricketers, have passed away one yeah. on Sunday. Yeah. And it's been my real first glimpse at the world of grief. But it doesn't even seem to be anywhere near the grief that you're talking about losing a child. How do you how do you get this is a deeply personal question now, so don't answer it if you don't wish. How do you get through the, the days and the weeks afterwards? Um sometimes you don't. Sometimes well, a lot of the time you don't care anymore about anything. You don't give a shit about anything. You don't care if you eat, you don't care if you don't eat. You don't care if you go out, you don't care if you stay in bed all day. Um, and and sometimes when you do go out, and it's different for me because people know me, um, so they come up to me in the street and they give me a hug or, hmm. or whatever. But what I've realised is that every second person you walk past in the street is dealing with some sort of grief. Hmm. Um, and therefore, because we now know this, because I now know from experience um, the most important thing there is to be kind to people. And if people, you know, come across, you know, abruptly or something, they might be having a shit day and they don't even want to get out of bed, but they have to get up, dress up, show up, go to work, hate the day and just get home. You know, so I think just um, treating people um, with a little bit of empathy and kindness, I think is a really big lesson for all of us. I'm really sorry you've had to go through that. As I said, I, I can picture nothing worse. So I, I'm really sorry you've had to go through a situation like that, Lisa. Yeah. And then, you know, um, oh, then we lost our mum like two months ago and, um, you know, that whole thing was, you know, that was sad as well and then we were able to slide one little, you know, page in for mum. She would have loved to, mum would have loved my book. She really would have. Um, But, you know, you kind of have an acceptance that you're going to lose your parents, especially when they're in their 80s. There there is an acceptance of a long life. may not have been a good life but a long life. But, yeah, you're right. When it's your kid, it's just, it's it's horrible. It is, I, I can't. It's really hard. To, it's really hard to explain. I, you know, the first thing I look at when I open my eyes is a photo of her on my wall. You know, I've got her face tattooed on my arm. I wear a ring that she gave me. I have her fingerprint, you know, on a necklace. You know, there's there, seriously, there's not one thing that happens in a day where I don't think about her. Not one. So I guess it, you get to. People have said to me that um, you learn to live with it, um, but it's 
not a it's not a good place to be. So, where to for now? You've turned sixty. Yeah. You're still four days later recovering from it, which I chuckled yeah. from it at the start for various reasons. Yeah. You've had a a life pack full of experiences and successes. Like, what, what's the grand plan now? Is it just to be happy or where, where, where does life sit when you turn 60 and you've had a life that you've had, Lisa? Um, I'm not really sure actually because <clears throat> I – I've had 30 years of growing up and swimming, 30 years of family and business, and now I'm at this point in my time where I feel like I've, all of my life I've been helping other people, um, and now I think maybe it's time to help myself and get myself back on track and, you know, practice what I preach, walk my own talk, I want to get in the van, I want to get in the combi and just go with the puppy, my husband, and, you know, lie under the stars and have a, a burnt sausage on a campfire, um, <laughs> crochet a blanket, mow the lawn, just be normal. <laughs> I just, I think I just want to be Lisa. I, you know, I love, I have loved my life. I do love my life. I love being who I am, Lisa Curry, you know, um, but Part of me just wants to be Lisa <laughs> and just, you know, because life, you only get one shot. You only get one life. Um, you don't ever want to get up and regret what you're doing. You don't want to get up in the morning and go, God, I hate my job. You know, quit. Go and do something else. Um, you want to wake up in the morning and be really excited about your day and what you're doing. You know, I've got two beautiful children here. I've got two beautiful grandsons. I've got another one that's you know, going to come any day now. So I want to be, I want to be the granny, you know, I want to be able to run around after them and, you know, take them to all their activities and bring them up here on the farm and just have fun with them because that's what life's about. Because at the end of the day, all you've got is your health and your family. That's about it. I tell you, mm. if you're picking up grandkids from kindergarten and the like in a pink combi, you will be the coolest granny by the length <laughs> of the straight. It is not funny. Talk, talking about kids, Lisa, we always finish the show this way. I mentioned we have a lot of children listen. For those that are listening that want to have some success in their life, you've had tremendous success in all sorts of realms. And as a, as a mum and a grandma, you understand the weight of this question more than anything I've asked you. What advice would you give to the young inquiring minds out there that are listening to this episode with you at the moment? I would give you my three words that I lived by and that is depend on yourself because you can have the best help around you, your parents support you, your teachers, your coaches, but you are the one that has to do the work. You are the one that sets the goals. You are the one that gets up in the morning and actions those goals to get to the path where you want to go and it's never a straight line. It's always wiggly. It's up and down the hills until you can get to the top of the mountain, but it's so worthwhile when you get there. It's a great way to finish, Lisa. Congratulations again on the book. Thanks for being open and honest. We had a power shutdown in the middle of this podcast, but I think we've still retained it all. As, a, as I said, uh, I can remember Matilda and I can remember you smiling and winning gold medals, so it's been a real thrill for me to chat with you. Stay safe and maybe have many, many, many more combi trips ahead of you. Yeah, thanks so much, Howie. Thank you so much to Lisa Curry for telling her story beautifully and bravely. 
been reading a lot about what happened in East Germany in Lisa's day after talking to her about it in relation to performance-enhancing drugs. It is mind-blowing what went on. Some fascinating stuff. Now, if you're on the road and you see a bright pink combi coming your way, it could be Lisa and her crew, so give them a big shout-out. Thanks to Lara Wallace from HarperCollins for making this episode happen, to Das for his editing and general good vibes, and to you all for listening. Well done. Take the rest of the day off. Until next Thursday, with the guru, the guru, Jim Nance. (laughs) Peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Listener.